Welcome to the Crucible 50 podcast series. I'm Ted George, son of the Crucible's founding artistic director, Colin George, and co-author of Stirring Up Sheffield, winner of the 2022 Theatre Book Prize. And I'm Ashley Barnes, deputy head of the Department of Humanities at Sheffield Hallam University and the former artistic director of Dead Earnest Theatre. As part of the Crucible's 50th anniversary celebrations, Ashley and I have been producing a series of podcasts exploring the Crucible's history and the challenges of working on the thrust stage. In this episode, Ted and I interview the artistic director of the Crucible, Rob Hasty. Ted has already interviewed Rob in the podcast series when he discussed directing on the thrust stage. But in this episode, we discuss the highlights of the Crucible's 50th anniversary year, as well as Rob's vision for Sheffield Theatres as it looks to the future. So let's start with the highlights of the past year. Although Rob refused to single out any one show, insisting quite rightly they were all brilliant, for Ashley and me, there was one standout candidate, Rock, Paper, Scissors. Three plays taking place simultaneously, one story, one set of actors moving between the three auditoria of Sheffield theatres, an extraordinary day's theatre for those of us lucky enough to get to see all three in one day. Are there any particular moments from the year that stand out for you? Because obviously the one that for me, if I can kick off first, it would be that moment when uh, at the end of Rock, Paper, Scissors, you came on stage with the whole company uh, the last night and everyone sang happy birthday to the Crucible. I mean, that was remarkable. Uh, to be there among that, you know. But what about um, also you, Ashley? What would your moment from the year be? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it would be Rock, Paper, Scissors as well. What an ambitious, silly idea that was. I mean, like, my goodness. Chris, to write three plays that, in, that interwove so beautifully, um, and each of them were of, of such high quality. You know, I kind of, I think, went along thinking that um, there'd be a standout piece and the others would would be a bit flabby but they weren't they were all fantastic so that was ridiculously ambitious um and to pull that off was was remarkable i think rob yeah i'm definitely the first day we did all three which was the the day we opened them to the press and i say we did all three obviously we did all three at every performance but i mean we gave the audience three opportunities to come along so they could see three in one day so actually it was a as we kept reminding ourselves it was not a three show day it was a nine show day but mingling with the audience on Tudor Square, the moment that people kind of emerged. I mean, firstly, the logistics of that project meant that just watching audiences emerge at the same time from all three theatres, the sense of triumph and relief when things like that kind of actually paid off was enormous. Going, oh, yeah, they're all coming out at the same time. That means it worked. But hearing conversations develop over the course of the day and the breaks between the shows as people kind of put together the, the experiences and that was really what that whole project was about for us I mean partly it was about just kind of the the stupidity of a massive ambition like that before we had any idea how we were going to do it to say this is what we're going to do which always seemed to us in the spirit of the people who who made the crucible come about in the city that that kind of spirit of adventure you can feel that really strongly in, in the legacy that Collins left us and in, and all the people that worked with him to bring the Crucible into being. But it was also about unifying our audiences today. Right from the approach of the 50th anniversary, we said we don't want to use this moment to endlessly to look back. This mustn't be a, a year of just greatest hits or revelling in nostalgia. You know, it's important to mark the past and it's really important to celebrate the contribution of so many hundreds of people over the last 50 years. 
But I think the the most joyous way to celebrate that legacy is to look forward and go, what always marked these buildings out is their newness, their bravery. It was such an act of faith to say audiences will come. You know, this isn't what audiences expect from theatre, this isn't what they know, but we've seen the future and we think audiences will like it. What was amazing is um, that whole experience, as you said, about being in the audience, because I went and saw it on the last day. And so this whole thing, as you said, you come out from one of the shows, you start mixing and you start to recognise people. There are some people who share the same journey. And, you know, we saw Scissors, Paper, Rock, Australian style. Some people saw it the other directions as well. But also it really reminded me actually more than anything of the Edinburgh Fringe when I was up there years ago, where you go and see a play and then you talk about it and then you see another play and you talk about it. But the difference was it was all the same play. And so it just kind of got richer and richer as a day. So each time we went back into the square, I somehow felt much more part of it. You don't normally get that, you know, a show finishes and it's goodbye, but it was like a show finished and it's like, here comes the next one. And it felt like the shared experience that we always aspire to in the theatre and particularly in the Crucible and in spaces where the audience and the performers are in the same room. It felt like that was sort of turbocharged, didn't it? That it was the collective endeavour and imagination and stamina of audiences and actors that were making that event happen. So I'm really pleased that we chose to create an event at the centre of the 50th anniversary year that does that, because that's really what The Crucible has always been about at its best, um, and what theatre at its best is. One of the things that it seemed to me that was really great about it as well was it, it was a Sheffield, it was a Sheffield story, when each of them were Sheffield stories. And sometimes, you know, over the years, there's been a number of Sheffield stories told on the Sheffield theatre's stages. But this was so authentic. It, it wasn't full of cliches. It felt authentic. And it was one of those things where sometimes the specific is universal, isn't it? Sometimes if we really hone in on something quite specific, it, it speaks to everybody. I think that's it was also quite philosophical as well, wasn't it? You know, all the discussion about transformation and energy. It was. I love that, that it kept on coming up again and you'd hear it from a different perspective. And... All the better, wasn't it, that it was a, a real homegrown talent in Chris Bush who achieved that. I mean, I think one of her particular skills is to take the, the specific and make it universal. But also to see her going into sort of what you might call kind of stoppard territory of kind of taking abstract kind of scientific and philosophical arguments and turn those into human drama and kind of find the ways that they relate on a human level. You know, I've not seen her do that before to that extent I know she writes brilliant characters she writes brilliant Sheffield stories she she's very funny she's she knows how to be poignant without being mawkish she really makes you feel for the characters and with the characters and you know there are never villains there are only complicated truthful people but also the interplay of ideas I mean I think when we first when we first said this is what we're going to do I, I don't think I had any idea that individually the plays would be so rich and that was a lovely thing about the whole project as well. It, you know, it was born in the darkest hour of the pandemic. We all co-directed, me, Anthony and Ellen, but we each took responsibility for delivering one of the plays. And I was on paper in the Lyceum. And the design for paper, I was sort of revelling in it, actually, because having spent such a long time in the Crucible and the Playhouse for the last few years, actually to go back into a proscenium arch where the design could get really, really detailed and naturalistic. It was really fun. And we had lots and lots and lots of paper. You know, it was set in, set in an old office and, and the, the motor of the play is that they're looking for some paperwork. So they're going through lots and lots of boxes, which drove the actors sort of quietly mad. 
over the weeks of rehearsal actually because they kept having to go oh hang on I've looked in this box already I can't have I looked in, have I checked this file um but the props that we were using in the rehearsal room were boxes of old theatre paperwork and in particular because as Ashley knows and indeed done a brilliant podcast on we're in the process of transferring over our archive a lot of these boxes were actually duplicate stuff from the archive and so we'd be rehearsing a scene and then people would get distracted and go wait a minute I didn't know she was in Glass Menagerie in 1981 at the end all the paperwork gets thrown in the air so it all gets muddled up so even if the boxes came into the room marked 1978 1979 1980 by the end of the rehearsal process they were all jumbled together so you just had big wadges of productions you keep seeing people go god they were in that and they were in that and all those connections and we had in the corner of our rehearsal room we had sam glossop our sound designer who is the son of roger glossop who was and is a brilliant theater designer and and has done a lot of work with in particular with alan akeborn but was practically resident in the building for many years as a designer at the crucible and his name just kept coming up and that was a nice thread to kind of pull through I think that's the spirit as well, okay, right? You remember when I first managed to come up to the Crucible, it was during the, one of the first waves of COVID anyway, but I was finally able to see a bit of the archive. And as you popped your head in and I was flicking through the archive, I found Dad's manifesto from 1971. Yeah. That was an extraordinary day, actually, when you came up, we were in the archive. Jackie had pulled it out all into the rehearsal. Exactly, Jackie and Andrew helped out, yeah. yeah. We had a, a fundraising gala a couple of months ago and um, I got some of the actors from Rock, Paper, Scissors to perform the um, Q&A that the press department had put together for Colin and anyone else who was likely to be asked questions of the press about, you know, what, why do we need two theatres in Sheffield? And isn't £900,000 a bit expensive for a new building? And, you know, all of those, all of those questions. And is this just a theatre for intellectuals? <laughs> and that sort of thing. And the answers were all brilliant. Some of the anachronisms, particularly in the figures, had a comic effect. But the core of it was like reading something we would write now in terms of, again, that spirit of ambition, that spirit of adventure. Is it there are spirits? I think, actually, you're going to ask something about people. I think, um, obviously, theatres are made of bricks and mortar, you know, and black cloths <laughs> and various things like that. But also the people are really important, aren't they? They're, they're the the thing that has kind of come out in a way through the podcasts and through some of the conversations is uh, some of the people that really have inhabited that space. And of course, it's really nice to get to know some of those people backstage, you know, the likes of Jackie, for example, you know, and there, there are some great people that work at Sheffield Theatres who are unsung heroes, aren't they, Rob? They are brilliant. We are very, very lucky to have such an incredible team, dedicated, expert craftspeople working in the theatre in all different departments and the pride and the loyalty that the theatre generates and, and gets from its staff is an enormous asset to us. The theatre has been indebted throughout its life not just to the artistic directors and the artists who've driven its identity but also the brilliant administrators, producers, chief executives it's been my good fortune to coincide my time here with Dan Bates, who's just been the most fantastic, inspirational, hardworking, visionary chief executive of these buildings. I've been really acutely aware this year in particular that we're only the lucky ones this generation. We are only the latest in a long line of people who have been working in this building for 50 years now. That's why the building is important, because it offers each new generation something 
you know, demands of us a responsibility. And another thing I suppose that's really been clear to me this year, listening to some of the podcasts and all the conversation that's, that, that's been going through the building, people talk about what a special place the Crucible is. I bang on about it endlessly and, and make no apology for that. And people talk about it being a magical space. When we talked before, Ted, we talked about how democratic is a word that gets used a lot. And it was really fun kind of deconstructing what people meant by that. But magic is a, is a, is a word that gets used a lot. It's a magical space. It's magic and particularly actors. This year in reconnecting with, through your book, Ted and your dad's book, and through all the conversations that have been going on about the, the making of the building, hearing Nick Thompson talk, doing loads of research into Tanya Masevich, what becomes clear is it's not magic at all. It's it's craft and skill and talent. It's no accident that standing in the centre of that stage feels empowering and comfortable and such an incredibly strong place for an actor to stand. It's no accident or it's no kind of mystery that walking through red doors at the centre of the auditorium feels like you're entering a space of limitless possibility where some great event is about to take place. That's not accidental, it's not magic. It's the careful deployment of angles and architecture that have guided you through the building to those doors, which are drawn from classical inspiration. So you feel that again and again, the more I've connected with our history over the last few months, the more I felt indebted to the vision, the brilliance, the expertise of all of those people who made and continued to remake this building over time. The, the, the one thing in particular that I've really latched onto and said quite a lot internally is that really wonderful spot right in the middle of the stage, which is the middle of this magic circle, the sacred circle that smooths off the angles of the octagon at the front of the crucible, that is directly underneath the apex of the roof, which is itself octagonal. And there is something really profound about going the centre of our building is the centre of the stage that is true both physically architecturally structurally and also metaphorically and organisationally everything builds out from this central point the centre of our purpose and the centre of our work is the stage Rob mentioned a little bit some of the podcasts maybe we should think about those so Ted you did you interviewed some really fascinating people over the podcast series what was your what was your favorite moment ted in the podcast series uh, the thing that was really interesting to me was the amount of people who have personal connections to sheffield things that i didn't realize um so in the case of dominic west i didn't realize it was his grandfather who you know worked at gleason's at the time who were the builders alex blake it was his grandfather who was um dr gerard young head of the building committee there were so many personal connections there as well that really surprised me I was amazed how many people who've been involved in the design and building of the Crucible, how young they were. Just extraordinary. You know, Nick Thompson was 37. There were, I mean, that's why this is still possible to talk to a lot of them. They're older now, but, you know, they're still around in that sense. Whereas Tony Bzevich, Tyrone Guthrie, you know, they were much older in comparison as well. But um, I just love the stories that really kind of tell you about 
what it's like the second an, an actor disappears from your sightline into the wings and what's really going on there. You know, the fact that when they were doing Wizard of Oz, they had crash mats at the bottom of the um, vomitories for uh, the monkeys going on roller skates and an ASM they're trying to catch them, you know, that sort of stuff. But also like a, a lot of discussion around what it felt like, this whole thing of being underneath the stage and when you come on. So everything from what it meant as an actor and also how as a director wants to use that, but then everything that people told me about this whole point about feeling part of a company, right? You're under the stage, you're there together, and then you're on. But also when they have the orchestra under there as well, everyone mixing together as well. I really like that idea that there's a whole sense of company going on that you don't see. And that's something to do with the crucible itself. And that's one of the really fabulous paradoxes, I think, in Tanya's work is that, is that something that feels... Uh, so shared it feels like such a shared space is also reliant for that feeling on a separation of worlds it's why the crucible is such a wonderful iteration of that theater design that hasn't quite yet reached you know in in earlier versions in Stratford Ontario in, in Chichester doesn't quite achieve the same power because you know in Chichester you enter the bombs come through the audience so there's no mystery or magic within that design when actors emerge from the VOMs in the Crucible, they are coming from a different world. The fact that they come from and go back to a space beyond the audience's experience, I think really contributes to what makes that space really charged. And what about you, Ashley? What things stand out for you in the podcast series as well? Because you started off with Chris Bush, you've also done the archive, we're doing this one as well. What stood out for you? I think probably the standout for me actually probably is going right back to the beginning ted when when the two of us did the original one about the book there was lots of lovely um discoveries in that that i didn't really know about i love reading the book and i really enjoyed talking to you obviously i got an appreciation of the space i loved the nick thompson event all those are fantastic but there were little bits about the passion of your father that i really enjoyed and i enjoyed talking to you about it because you've got something of your father in the way that you've written that book and the way that you've pursued people for the podcast series, you know, which I think was lovely. I'm also, I've, I've been interested in, in theatre for young people and various in community theatre and so forth. And, and so as a little discovery was also his youth theatre stuff that he did at the very, very beginning and how that was, you know, right at the forefront of kind of theatre and education and all of those sorts of things. And the stuff that I studied as a, as a student about the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry. Well, perhaps I should have been studying about Sheffield theatres as well. So that, you know, there were some lovely discoveries, but I think I think I want to go back to that very first conversation, I think, Ted. Oh, thanks. That's lovely. And also, of course, children's theatre is how my father met my mother, so I wouldn't be here without it, basically. So, um, Rob, I think it might be time for us to think forward a little bit um, about the future. So what are your creative and organisational priorities for the next few years? Well, it's nice to have gone from a position of, you know, only a few months ago, just you know, mere survival felt like a, like a, a valid goal. I mean, I think we're in, we're in for an incredibly challenging time in the theatre and, you know, across the whole of society. We know that these are difficult times and they're not going to get any easier anytime soon. And I think that really sharpens your sense of what's important about what we do. The next five years will be about how do we give people experiences in the theatre that they can only get in the theatre? That's a real guiding principle for us when we're thinking about the Crucible in particular, because it's a unique space. What can we do in here that no one else can do? 
if we do this show in here that's been done in other places, what will the effect of putting it in the crucible be on that piece of work so that we are creating experiences that are unique to this audience, to this place? That's something that really impacted um, going to see Rock, Paper, Scissors also because it was like having been denied theatre for like, I don't know, 18 months. Maybe I'd seen one small show or something. Suddenly to get this massive feast was just incredible. It reminded me across the board what theatre is all about. You know, everything about the interaction, the discussion, uh, the shared space, all that sort of stuff. There were so many different things in there. Um, it was kind of a bit overwhelming all at once. So I guess that's the message you're trying to get out. Yeah. Ambition and adventure and preserving the space for ambition and adventure because there will be economic imperatives for us to play safe and go small but known titles with small casts is not what has driven the crucible to the place it is now it's you know it's about dreaming big it's about putting whole societies on stage telling stories that take you to other places i think we go to the theater for two reasons i think we go to see ourselves represented and I think we go to experience what life is like to be other people, to be in other places and other times. And we're at our best as a theatre when we're doing both in alternation or sometimes at the same time. So, you know, Life of Pi helps you kind of imagine what it would be like to be marooned in the Indian Ocean with a Bengal tiger. And then Standing at the Sky's Edge is about telling our city story and saying what's important to us. Sheffield Theatres has developed really good relationships with other theatre companies, you know, Rants on the Moon, other producing houses around the country, but also material from Sheffield Theatres, productions from Sheffield Theatres do go to other, other spaces as well. And of course, you were talking about um, the life of Pi and standing at Sky's Edge, you know, they're transferring to other spaces. So how, how do you see that in terms of kind of creative alliances and partnerships and stuff going forward at other, other theatres? Do you build that into your thinking from the outset? There's as many different ways for shows to come into existence as there are shows, really. You know, it, it's all a different kind of aligning of circumstance and, and visions. Theatre is an essentially collaborative medium, so it's really nice to cross-pollinate with other theatres. And of course, there is economic value to sharing resources and, and making them stretch further. But we've always got to be careful. We don't put that before the artistic What's it like, for example, to try and transfer Standing at the Sky's Edge from the Crucible to the Olivier? Because, you know, as we know, we've discussed a lot in this series, but there's uh, quite a few differences between the two spaces. And there's quite certainly a lot is spoken about in the fact of the Olivier, this whole question of two different ranks of seats. So I imagine it's going to be a very different kind of challenge to directing that. I and mean, is it going to have to change quite a bit in the show when it goes in? It'll change a bit. Yeah, necessarily it will. I've been working a lot with Ben Stone's designer, and page the choreographer to map one ground plan from the Crucible to the Olivier. I suspect the changes will be invisible to, I hope the changes will be invisible to an audience. There will be a difference in feel because they're different theatres, but I'm experiencing this a lot with um, Much Do About Nothing at the moment, that going from theatre to theatre, it's really fascinating and beautiful to see how a group of actors, the subtle shifts in character and tone and, and story that happen when a piece of work comes into contact with a differently shaped room. Now we just come from Nottingham, which is totally different in shape to the Crucible, but sits at the heart of its city in, in a very similar way. You can feel the audience's pride for their theatre. We've got lots of partnerships coming up. 
We're working with English Touring Theatre and Lyric Hammersmith on The Good Person of Sichuan. We're working with Theatre Centre on Birds and Bees. And of course, yeah, as you say, we're co-producing Standing at the Sky's Edge with the National Theatre. And all of those are brilliant opportunities to work with artists from around, around the industry and to take our work further. It's really important to us that we make work for Sheffield audiences. The shows that we've had that have gone on to big things in the West End or on tour or even on screen, um, all of that is wonderful because who doesn't want to share their work with a wider audience? But they're only ever successful if they're initially made for our audience in our theatre, made for, by, with, from Sheffield. That's when we feel the kind of momentum build for something that might have a further life is when our audiences embrace it. So another thing I'd like to ask, Rob, um, going beyond actually the shows themselves, but actually the auditoria, because there are the three auditoria. We have the renamed Tanya Mazevich Playhouse, we have the Crucible, um, and we have the Lyceum, which, of course, you've now finally got to direct in. Um, how are you planning to sort of use those together? Obviously, I don't imagine you're going to be doing another Rock the Paper Scissors, but how they fit together, it gives you a kind of a, a unique ability because it is the largest theatre complex outside London. Yeah, God, never again, rock, paper, scissors. Um, it was it was brilliant to do and brilliant to have done. Um, the great privilege that having three theatres like this affords us is that the programme will has to be eclectic. I think it's really important that we always pursue a house standard above a house style so that audiences know that whichever of our theatres they come to, they're going to have a great time. They're going to see something that's been made with care and with vision and with passion on the saturday night you could have gone to the first preview of the contingency plan in the, the crucible really really it's like searingly brilliant play about climate change you go on the last night of accidental death of an anarchist in the playhouse in tanya masayevich playhouse which was blisteringly funny it has a really important message but the building was rocking with laughter uh, you could have gone across the road to see Darren Brown in the Lyceum. And, you know, they're three very different prospects. I think the thing that I hope is going to push us on to the next level is the way that we think about the space we formerly called the studio, the Tanya Masayevich Playhouse. Learning about where that space came from, your book, and your dad's absolute brilliant foresight right from the beginning saying yeah we need another space <laughs> we need a studio space as well right in that, first, in that very that's first why there was never a budget for it and i imagine that's yeah. still the question these um, today you know it has become over 50 years absolutely indispensable to the artistic life and success of these buildings and this organization and that was why the time was right for us to, i think to give it a name beyond the sort of generic studio that suggested something much smaller actually than it is as a as a space now that we are really thinking about that as our as our smallest but by no means least space it's an equal partnership between three spaces i hope that will push us forward it, it's very easy for us to kind of ghettoize new work into the smallest space and to ghettoize work for audiences that need developing into the smallest space. And that, you know, that's for lots of good reasons to do with managing risk and so on. But some of the most exciting work from the last few years has been brand new and has been in the crucible. And that should give us confidence to say we don't need to do new plays in the small space and classic plays in the big space. We can mix it up. I hope that will give us for now and whoever takes over next the 
courage to treat all three spaces differently, to recognise they have different demands, different audiences can do different things. They don't need to complement each other in predictable ways or in set ways. It can be a constantly evolving relationship between all three spaces and indeed all of the other spaces around them. A highlight for me of this year is what's happened in what we've done in the lower foyer, which for a very long time was not offering the kind of welcome or making the best use of that space that you feel throughout the rest of the buildings. And so what we've done that's really exciting is to kind of reinvigorate that space, kind of completely change the character of it. And I think that's changed the experience of going to the Playhouse in particular, but also just the experience of coming into the building at any time of the day. And that's what's really important to us. The most exciting days of the last 12 months for me have been the days like in Rock, Paper, Scissors, like when you're opening a preview in one space and having the last night in another, where the whole place is just full all day. Like we had when ARC came in, we brought in loads of the work that we'd done out in the community through fundraising that we'd done during the pandemic and had just had days and days of people using the space as their own. I had to say where I think we will evolve next I think it will be the realisation of a long-held ambition to get the city to feel its ownership of our spaces in a way that, that has happened in the past and has happened sporadically, but I think we've slightly drifted away from that feels like the direction of travel. Yeah, and I think one of the things, Rob, that you've thrown open the doors, we've talked a bit about audiences, you know, thrown open the doors to different communities people coming in and um, seeing work that reflects their experience, all those sorts of things. But I think also, I think the success over the last maybe five, maybe 10 years, I don't know, is, is to kind of make the stage a bit more democratic, to use that word again. You know, I think that we've seen different communities who have actually been on the stage as well. You were talking about the ARC project, but we were also talking about other work like Rants on the News. You know, that's something that's been a real noticeable as a as a member of the audience at Sheffield Theatres. It's fantastic, the, the different people that are given a, a voice on that stage, I think. Yeah. By the way, I do think that's always been there. You, re, you know, you read Collins' manifestos and, and writings from the 70s, and, and all of that is absolutely in the DNA of the building. What feels very current at the moment is how we think about representation, how we are allowing a reflection of the demographics of our city, but paying particular attention to those voices that have not felt welcome or have not been championed and not supported, have been actively in some cases shut out. Not, I don't just mean in our building, in the art form and culture in general. And we're feeling that, I think we're feeling the renewed joy of coming together to make great things happen that only happens when the when the offer is truly inclusive and when the voices that are championed on stage and you know have room on stage are truly diverse and truly a rich representation of the society we live in i think that's becoming more and more apparent that theater has neglected the the creative engine of that to its cost and I think companies around the country and around the city that are doing something about that are the ones that are making the most exciting work and the ones that will flourish in the next few years. Are you able to talk all at all about your ideas for a fourth space? <laughs> um, yeah, they're just ideas. I mean, there have been plans in the past at various points for another performance space. What we feel the absence of, because the studio was never really a studio, it was always bigger 
what we feel the absence of sometimes I think is a genuinely nimble space where you can throw things on very very quickly and simply that would be the dream is to find a space I and mean, we've got the bank brilliantly it's a space just across Tudor Square which is our talent development space which is proving incredibly helpful in nurturing the next generation of, of theatre artists there is the possibility one day we might be able to turn that into a small performance space maybe that's the answer maybe it's somewhere else fortunately both the crucible and the playhouse are very welcoming even to inexperienced even just in you know to scratch shows we threw on stuff during the pandemic very very swiftly and it thrived in both spaces so it's not like we don't have that available to us but it would be really nice to have a platform for locally created art that doesn't have to be programmed months in advance to fit in with our brochure schedule it can be much more responsive and fleet of foot do you think the crucible will still be there in another 50 years oh definitely i mean in a really practical way you know this <laughs> this theater will survive a nuclear winter the concrete is so thick <laughs> it's like you know uh, they, they knew what they were doing it's not going anywhere it's re it's built to last this this building but seriously folks i think it would take a very long time to unpick the pride and the loyalty that our city feels for for these theatres those of us who are profoundly lucky enough to have worked here at some point in our careers will attest to the fact that what holds these buildings is the affection and pride that the city has for them that's why they'll still be here in another 50 years. It's a city that wants its theatre, and that's a very precious resource. That was Rob Hasty, Artistic Director of Sheffield Theatres. Well, that's all we have time for. Many thanks to Rob for taking the time to share insights on what the future holds for the Crucible Theatre. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in the series, just search Crucible 50 Podcast on any of the usual channels. You can read the full story of the battle to build the Crucible Theatre in Stirring Up Sheffield, winner of the 2022 Theatre Book Prize. You can get a copy from the publisher, Wordville, using the link in the podcast description. So I'll just finally say thanks, Ashley. I've really enjoyed doing this podcast series with you. Do you have any final words? Yeah, it's been great to be involved, Ted. Thanks ever so much for the, the opportunity for us to talk about this stuff, which has been really interesting. And thank you for listening. See you next time.